Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Marcus Stanley of the Quincy Institute, who considers the importance of current peace talks between Russia and Ukraine and the need for U.S. support in those negotiations to end the war. Robbie Silverman of Oxfam America who discusses why a tentative international agreement on intellectual property is a potential setback for the equitable global distribution of COVID vaccines, treatment, and testing. And Deborah Weinstein, executive director of the Coalition on Human Needs, who explains why the nation's childcare system is failing and what advocates are now trying to do to fix it. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. On March 1st, Russian President Vladimir Putin took time out from managing his deadly invasion of Ukraine to call a close ally. Mohammed bin Zayed, Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi and the de facto ruler of the United Arab Emirates. The UAE had abstained from a United Nations Security Council resolution condemning Russia's attack on Ukraine. The Intercept reports that leaders of both Saudi Arabia and the UAE have refused to take calls from President Joe Biden to discuss the Ukraine crisis. All of this follows the UAE's decision, along with Saudi Arabia, to collude with Russia to drive up oil and gas prices to their highest levels in years, while generating a bonanza of profits that will undermine new international sanctions imposed on Moscow. In response, Progressive Representative Ilhan Omar of Minnesota called on the U.S. to freeze arms sales to the UAE, including F-35 fighter jets and drones approved by the Trump regime due to the UAE's war crimes and massive human rights violations committed in the UAE-Saudi-led war in Yemen. Trita Parsi, executive vice president of the Quincy Institute, observes that the U.S.-UAE relationship is a one-way street where the U.S. makes massive sacrifices for this small authoritarian state and doesn't even get solidarity in the Security Council in return. Countries in Africa are experiencing some of the world's most serious impacts of the global climate crisis, but have few resources to prepare for and recover from droughts, floods, and lethal heat waves. Compared to other regions, Africa receives the least amount of funding for research to invest in climate resilience projects, reports Foreign Policy magazine. According to a recently released report by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, less than 4% of global climate change research funding since 1990 has focused on Africa. Instead, nearly 90% of the funding has been spent on research in the United States and Europe. Advocates maintain that Africa will need $50 billion to adapt to a warming climate. Ethiopia is already spending $6 billion annually to counter the impact of floods, hailstorms, and wildfires. The group PowerShift Africa reports that poor African countries spend over 5% of their GDP on climate adaptation. 
After years of civil war, South Sudan, the second poorest nation on earth, is beset by floods and waterborne disease and is forced to spend $375 million annually on climate adaptation programs, about 3.1% of its current GDP. In early March, 91 people detained for parole violations at New York City's Rikers Island Jail were hopeful they might go free. A new reform parole law was scheduled to take effect on March 1st. The law known as the Less is More Act makes it difficult for New York State to jail people who commit technical parole violations and gives those jailed a chance to argue for their release. But those 91 people remained at Rikers Island after the state parole agency ruled the cases of those who had been detained before March 1st would not be grandfathered in and therefore would not be released. The American Prospect reports that the state's reform leaders and the community activists who helped pass the law were outraged. Meanwhile, New York Governor Kathy Hochul, who signed the bill into law, did not force the agency to change its interpretation of the law. She observed that New York State incarcerates more people for parole violations than anywhere else in the country. Advocates have taken the parole agency to court over its alleged obstructionism with mixed results. In January, the daily average number of those jailed on technical parole violations was higher than the previous month, suggesting that the agency was incarcerating new people on technical violations after the Less is More bill became law. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Dixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues, the southern city of Mariupol has withstood constant bombardment, resulting in indiscriminate destruction and a large number of civilian deaths and injuries. Up to seven Russian Navy ships have shelled the coastal city from the Sea of Azov. After almost four weeks since President Putin launched the invasion, observers say the Russian military has largely stalled in place and have turned to heavy air and artillery bombardment of several Ukrainian cities. Meanwhile, President Biden is scheduled to visit Belgium and Poland on March 23rd in an effort to hold together the Western alliance. After several rounds of talks between Ukrainian and Russian representatives, there have been no breakthroughs to establish a ceasefire or end the conflict. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has said all issues would be open for discussion, as he called for direct talks with Russian President Putin. The top issues on the table are the status of Crimea, which Russia annexed in 2014, the fate of the breakaway regions of Donetsk and Luhansk, and Kiev's goal of joining the NATO military alliance. Zelensky says that any compromises he may reach with Moscow would be put to a referendum vote. Your reporter spoke with Marcus Stanley advocacy director at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who considers the importance of current negotiations between Russia and Ukraine and the role of the U.S. to support those talks to end the war. I do think diplomacy is critical. And I think that as Americans, you know, I I think the U.S. has a moral obligation, even though we're not the 
the leaders in diplomacy here. Ukraine is the leader in, in diplomacy. And we, you know, obviously cannot and should not sort of impose a diplomatic solution on Ukraine. But uh, the U.S. is an important player here, I think. And we should be seeking as rapid a peaceful end to this war as we can, even if it does involve some painful compromise, because the alternative of the war continuing, it will, yes, that will weaken Russia and weaken Putin on the world stage, but it will be a disaster for the people of Ukraine. I mean, it would involve sort of fighting Putin to the last Ukrainian, you know, which I think is a very dark outcome. Uh, And it will also, as long as this war is continuing, we face the risk of nuclear escalation of the war and escalation of the war to uh, nearby NATO countries, which is extraordinarily dangerous. So in terms of the prospects for diplomacy, I think it's, it's a very difficult and delicate situation right now. We've seen kind of this alternation between uh, reports of some progress and a potential settlement on the table, and then people saying, no, that's in fact not true. And I, I think the outline, sort of the consistent kind of outline that has seemed to come out, does revolve around a neutral Ukraine that does not join NATO some kind of recognition of Russia's occupation of Crimea and some kind of settlement of the Donbass civil war. Uh, And then also possibly a change in internal policies toward Russian speakers, though that's less clear. These are the same issues that led to the war. And it appears Russia, you know, from Russia's perspective, it appears Russia is continuing to put them on a table on the table for a diplomatic solution. The problem is when you get into the details of these, uh, it's extremely tricky because obviously Ukraine wants and needs some security guarantee so they don't just get invaded again. Uh, And what does that look like? What does that guarantee look like? And how is it different than Ukraine joining NATO? And how does it preserve, from Russia's perspective, a neutral Ukraine? And then within Ukraine, these, these internal issues about or these issues about Crimea and the Donbass are very, very controversial within Ukraine. So it's a very tricky situation for Zelensky. Uh, just as a last note, I think that any peace settlement also has to be attentive to the, the need for reparations and the rebuilding of Ukraine from mm-hmm. the damage that has been done and, and is being done. Right. Marcus, I did want to ask you about one key element of any future peace agreement, and that would be the lifting of onerous sanctions that are currently in place on Russia. How willing do you think the United States and the European Union and other actors across the world would be to lift sanctions against Russia as part of a comprehensive peace deal? I would say, first of all, these sanctions go far beyond uh, Putin and his inner circle. Uh, these sanctions are pretty devastating to the overall Russian economy that the U.S. put together with uh, our allies very quickly and effectively. And I think it's a, a key question uh, for the Biden administration. What is the goal of these sanctions? Because if the goal of these sanctions is to weaken Russia uh, over a long period of time, uh, degrade the Russian economy and military, make Russia pariah in the community of nations, and eventually perhaps achieve regime change, eventually drive out Putin, 
that is a goal that will take years. That that is you, you know, I mean, it's a goal that will take years and may not even be attainable. We we've seen 60 years of sanctions on Cuba that did not succeed in regime change. Uh, you know, we've seen decades of sanctions on Iran that did not succeed in regime change. So, if your goal with these sanctions is to weaken and punish Russia and possibly achieve regime change, then they would have to be in place for a very long time. Uh, but if you want to sort of achieve the maximum incentives to settle the war and you want to maximize the negotiating power of the Ukrainian government in dealing with Russia, then you do put these sanctions on the table for an end to the war in Ukraine. You say that if there is a diplomatic solution worked out here that is acceptable to Ukraine, and if that diplomatic solution leads to a ceasefire and withdrawal this year, then lifting the sanctions is on the table, and you would lift the sanctions, at least uh, some of them, at least the ones sort of collectively aimed at, at all of Russia. And that, I think that may be po politically difficult in the United States. I think there are Frankly, there are a lot of people in Washington, D.C. who would like to see sort of an extended conflict and extended sanctions that sort of break Russia decisively as a world power, perhaps over a multi-year period. Uh, but that is a, a very dangerous course, and that's also a course that's going to, I think, maximize the bloodshed in the war. That was Marcus Stanley. Advocacy Director at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Find more analysis and commentary on the issues being discussed in Ukraine-Russia peace talks by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. As many Americans and media commentators talk about the COVID pandemic in the past tense, the virus continues to make people sick and kills primarily those who are unvaccinated in the U.S. and around the world. Over 6 million people have died from the coronavirus globally, with nearly 1 million who've lost their lives in the U.S. While the numbers of new cases in the U.S. have dramatically declined after the Omicron wave peaked late last year, a new, more contagious subvariant of Omicron called BA2 has been on the rise in Europe and could soon trigger another wave in America. The U.N. recently reported that only about 13 percent of the populations in low-income countries had been vaccinated, compared with nearly 70 percent in high-income nations. Alarmingly, the COVID death toll is four times higher in poor nations than wealthy ones. A recent meeting of representatives from the U.S., European Union, India, and South Africa, known as the Quad, discussed the urgent need to waive intellectual property rights in order to make COVID vaccines, treatment, and testing available to the world's most vulnerable people. Your reporter spoke with Robbie Silverman, Senior Manager of Private Sector Advocacy at Oxfam America, who explains why a tentative agreement reached by the Quad is inadequate and a potential setback for vaccine, treatment, and testing access equity. Close to the start of the pandemic, South Africa, India, in more than 100 countries around the world, filed a petition with the World Trade Organization calling for um, a waiver of intellectual property restrictions that would allow those countries to actually manufacture life-saving COVID medicines for their own citizens. 
They were basically saying we are in you know, the house is on fire. We are in a global pandemic. We need to suspend the normal intellectual property rules that allow pharmaceutical companies to have monopoly control over this life-saving technology. Let give us the recipe, give us the technical know-how. We will manufacture our own doses for our own citizens. So that was a call issued close to the start of the pandemic that, to its great credit, President Biden uh, last spring announced his support in favor of that waiver at the WTO. And that was really a, a single watershed moment, a real demonstration of U.S. leadership. The problem is that since that time, negotiations have dragged on and dragged on and dragged on, while millions of people around the world have fallen ill and died. And the, the central challenge is that the countries that were calling for the waiver simply don't have access to life-saving vaccines because pharmaceutical companies have prioritized selling to rich countries. That if you look at where the doses have actually gone, they've gone almost exclusively to rich countries that have hoarded doses for their own citizens to the point that you know rich countries have now thrown away more doses because they've expired than have, than have been provided to low-income countries. And so it's a result of this inequality that you know, the world's sort of poor and middle-income countries banded together to ask for this WTO waiver. In the last week, there's now been um, potential movement in terms of what a waiver might look like. And on the one hand, it's good news that the negotiations may finally be achieving some result. The bad news is that the deal that's on the table right now really isn't a very good deal. And it falls short, I think, in three key ways. The first is that it just covers vaccines. It doesn't cover testing or treatments. And we now know that there are multiple effective treatments that are actually critical to treating the virus, saving lives, um, and, and getting the public health system back on its feet so hospitals aren't completely inundated. So that's one big problem. The second big problem is that the geographic scope is limited. It leaves some countries out, some countries are in, and what we really need is a global solution to a global pandemic that includes every country around the world. The third is probably the biggest issue, which is the current deal on the table is just the patents themselves and not the technical knowledge that goes along with it. And so for the COVID vaccine, you need the recipe itself, but you also need the knowledge for how to sort of put that recipe into action to actually start producing doses. And so, you know, on the one hand, we're gratified that the process of the WTO is moving, but we really think the current deal on the table leaves much to be desired. And so we're urging for a waiver that includes vaccines, testing, and treatment, that includes all countries around the world, and that includes not just the recipe, but also the technical knowledge behind that. And we think that actually would be the breakthrough that we need to finally get the pandemic under control. Robbie, I did want to ask you about the major obstacles in the way of getting vaccines, treatments, and tests to the majority of people in the world today. I've read that Great Britain, Switzerland, and the European Union have staked out positions that oppose providing not only the patents, waiving the patents, but also they've been reluctant to uh, force these pharmaceutical companies to offer up the recipe and the technical know-how that you referred to? I think this really comes down 
to the immense political power that big pharma has in multiple countries around the world. And if you look at the countries that are most vociferously opposed to this waiver of intellectual property rights, it is exactly those countries with the biggest domestic pharmaceutical company uh, manufacturing base. So that includes Germany, it includes Switzerland, it includes the UK, it includes France. And I should also note that the U.S., even while President Biden announced his support for the waiver, the U.S. has frankly not done enough to actually secure the waiver and get it across the finish line. And so it really is those countries that have the biggest pharmaceutical companies in them that are the most opposed. And in a way, this isn't too surprising because the pandemic, while causing an untold amount of suffering throughout the world, has made a small number of people extraordinarily rich. And pharmaceutical companies are doing extremely well. That was Robbie Silverman, Senior Manager of Private Sector Advocacy at Oxfam America. Learn more about the campaign, demanding equitable distribution of COVID vaccines, treatment and testing by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. President Biden's now derailed Build Back Better legislation, addressing many critical social issues, would have provided billions of dollars in payments to parents into child care centers to help fix a broken system. The proposed measure would have subsidized child care and created a universal preschool program for three- and four-year-olds. The successful child tax credit expansion would have been extended for another year, and a change that permits low-income families to claim the credit would have become permanent. But united Republican opposition and dissent from one lone conservative Democrat to the overall package killed the bill. So various constituencies are now scrambling to try to preserve their key priorities. With an average national cost of $14,000 annually, millions of American families can't afford child care. Child care workers who are overwhelmingly female, have always been poorly paid, about $26,000 a year. But with the increasing cost of living, combined with poverty-level wages, many childcare workers have been forced to look for better-paying jobs. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Deborah Weinstein, Executive Director of the Coalition on Human Needs based in Washington, D.C. Here she explains why the nation's childcare system is broken, and what advocates are now trying to do to fix it. The child care system is broken. Uh, it's unaffordable for many families, but pays so appallingly little to child care teachers that thousands upon thousands have left the field. Um, it was a mess before the pandemic, but the pandemic further fractured child care. More than 300,000 workers left. Uh, many child care centers and family daycares shut down, and we still haven't gotten all those workers back. Uh, why is that? Well, during the pandemic, because people had to stay home, 
including childcare workers in some instances, uh, there was much less childcare available and parents working at home uh, either lost work or had less, couldn't afford childcare. So a very bad problem got a lot worse. Uh, now, as we're trying to revive the childcare system, uh, we're still not back where we were. We haven't gotten all the workers back who left and about eight out of 10 childcare centers are reporting staffing shortages um, and costs have risen uh, more than 40% for childcare centers. Um, and across the country, the average uh, rose from about $10,000 for one child to $14,000 a year. Why is this such a problem? Because unlike uh, elementary school education, for instance, which we understand is a public good that needs public support, there's been hardly any public support for childcare. I mean, I know the Build Back Better Act was going to include, I don't remember all the details, but maybe you could say what the Build Back Better Act would have done and, and now trying to rescue parts of it, what you are looking to get government support for. President Biden had proposed, has still proposed a historic investment in childcare. Uh, it would dramatically increase the number of families that get support. Uh, families would save about $5,000 a year for children under age five. Uh, and it would vary by income and teachers would get paid more. Um, you know, right now uh, they're making only a little across the country around $25,000 a year and they'd get paid more so they wouldn't have to leave the field they love to earn above poverty wages. And the families with the lowest income would not have to pay for childcare. What does that do? It means that parents can work and we've seen a huge number of mothers leave the labor force in the pandemic and they're not all back uh, because of this childcare dislocation. It means that more children can be helped at the very earliest stages with their education so they can thrive. And it would take an awful lot of pressure off families and especially in a time of inflation where childcare costs and so many other costs are going up. And at the same time, we would start to recognize the value of childcare workers, start to pay them enough so that they don't leave the field uh, to work at Starbucks or someplace. Uh, we need their services. Uh, what's more valuable than caring and educating our young children? Um, this proposal would, would do all of those things. That was Deborah Weinstein, Executive Director of the Coalition on Human Needs. Learn more about groups across the country working to improve the child care system by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on CKDU in Halifax, Nova Scotia, KPFT in Houston, Texas, KIDE in Hoopa, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Mm-hmm.